it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, April 4th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in each and every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Many ways to listen live, all of which are at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also get our podcast, which is free every day, GuyBensonShow.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Programming note, one of my capacities in media is I'm a Fox News contributor in addition to hosting this show, and I will be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. That's in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Fox News channel. Hope to see you there. Here's the lineup for today's show, and we are stacked. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg will join us later this hour to talk about what's happening in Ukraine, the latest movement of troops with the Russians leaving and abandoning the area around Kiev and moving to the east, which is what they indicated they were going to do. That's some of the good news here. There's a lot of bad news as well, certainly from a humanitarian standpoint. We'll get to that in mere moments. Brett Bayer. Our colleague and anchor of Special Report, as I mentioned, I'll be on with him tonight on TV. He'll be with us here on the radio side just after 4 p.m. Eastern in our next hour. Andy McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor, he's going to drop by. We'll talk about the attacks against Justice Clarence Thomas. Also, his thoughts on Hunter Biden. Will Hunter Biden potentially face indictment? He knows a lot about these types of investigations, and we will ask Andy here in our middle hour. In our final hour, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, former acting secretary of DHS Chad Wolf will join me here in studio in D.C. face to face talking about the border crisis, which we know is about to get significantly worse this month and then certainly next month and beyond because of a huge policy decision Team Biden rolled out just in the last few days. They admit it's going to be a disaster for an already disastrous status quo. And we will get Secretary Wolf's reaction here on the program. Plus, Matt Napolitano with sports. It's the NCAA basketball championship game tonight. And we will get uh, his analysis ahead of Kansas versus UNC following a game for the ages in the Final Four. Let's begin with some of the aforementioned bad news out of Ukraine. And we'll get into Russia's failures their redeployment out of the Kiev area, that is encouraging. What is horrifying is what has been left behind in some of these cities and towns that were occupied for a time by the Russian forces. And it makes you wonder, with a chill down your spine, what is happening to Ukrainian people in places that are dominated by the Russians, in the East, for example. I mean, just story after story video after video on social media showing evidence of rampant war crimes by the Russians as they retreat, murdering civilians intentionally as they retreat. A 
a level of ruthlessness and viciousness that is just shattering. It's unimaginable to people of conscience. But it's what we are seeing from the Russian military, even as they are failing and struggling. Maybe they're taking out some of those frustrations on innocent people, men, women, and children. I see the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is currently briefing at the White House. We are monitoring that here on the program because he is adding his voice to the chorus of condemnation that has come from all across the civilized world. President Biden just said that in addition to Vladimir Putin being a war criminal, there should be war crimes prosecutions now based on the evidence that is being left behind and emerging as the world looks on just with gut-wrenching sadness and disgust. Here's what the president said. Cut 27. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter is so it happened in Vukovic. This warrants him. He is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen. He's talking about the city of Bucha or pronounced Bucha. This is where a lot of these war crimes have been discovered so far. A town where the Ukrainians are now back in charge. They have raised their flag once again. They are very pleased and gratified by that, reveling in the defeat of those Russians there, but discovering hundreds of bodies, not military targets, human beings who are totally unconnected to the Ukrainian military. People who were shot dead at point-blank range with their hands tied behind their back, people who had been tortured, women raped. There is a report, a lengthy one, that aired on the BBC. Jeremy Bowen is the journalist, and it just knocks the wind out of you. I'm going to play it for you. Before I do that, two things. Number one, if you are squeamish, about this sort of thing, or you've got kids in the car or something like that, this is not easy listening by any stretch of the imagination. So just a warning, and you can adjust accordingly. Number two, I play this not because I feel like it's great radio. It's because we need to know what's happening. We were talking earlier on our show call about there's almost a numbness setting in based on what's happening in Ukraine. And when people use phrases like never again and support Ukraine, you need to not avert your eyes from realities, brutal, heinous realities, realities caused by effectively one man, Vladimir Putin. So in that spirit and with a heavy heart, I want to play this for you. This is BBC Jeremy Bowen on the wreckage left behind in the Kiev area by Putin's forces, starting with Cut 29. 
The last bleak kick of winter froze any euphoria left from Ukraine's successful defense of Kiev. The war is switching to the east. Both sides will learn lessons. The Russians left their armor vulnerable to drone artillery and fast-moving infantry with anti-tank weapons. You can see the results scattered across the roads and villages around the capital. This was a Russian supply column on the main highway that runs west from Kiev. The lorries were carrying ammunition. Artillery shells are scattered across the road. Russia will find logistics less challenging in the east, closer to its border. A few minutes further down the road in the village of Kalinivka were a few civilians, a rare sight, so we stopped. So this is the news crew stopping to talk to these civilians. Cut 30, the report continues. Irina Kostenko wanted to talk about the 10th of March, the day the Russians killed her only son, Oleksiy. The two lived here just 500 meters from his job, changing tires at a garage. Irina led the way to her son's bedroom, damaged by shelling weeks after he was killed. We were the first outsiders she'd seen since the Russians left on Friday, and the story of Alexei's death spilled out. The pain is so bad. Now I'm all alone. My son was young, 27 years old. He wanted to stay alive. Oleksiy was born when Irina was 18. Her life has not been easy, but she dreads the future without him. And just the anguish on this woman's face is apparent watching the video. You can hear it in her voice. Cut 31. She said he'd served in the army, but that day he was going to work at the garage. After they killed her son, she fled, and the Russian soldiers took over the house. And judging by the rubbish they left behind them, they were having a good time. Loads of bottles of vodka, Jack Daniels, Bell's whiskey, beer, you name it. It is hard to understand human behavior like this. But what makes it really tragic is that there are so many accounts of it happening where Russian soldiers have been and are now in Ukraine. On her own, Irina buried Alexei in the garden after she'd brought his body back from the road in a wheelbarrow. I covered the grave with a blanket to protect it from the dogs. He isn't in the coffin. I had to roll him in a carpet. Hmm. Imagine, imagine a mother having to do this. The report concludes in cut 32. Did you say to the Russians, why did you kill my son? They were in jeeps with guns. They killed him and fled. How can I talk to such morons? I want them dead. I want their children to lie like my son. Close to where Alexei was killed, opposite the house, 
Ukrainian troops were salvaging Russian ammunition to use it against them. They'll need it if Russia launches a spring offensive in the east. Five weeks of war, but it only takes a moment to destroy a family. Irina found another picture of her son. This is my love, she said. My sweetheart. She's just crushed. And for what? The Wall Street Journal reporting that Ukraine's prosecutor general's office said yesterday that at least 410 bodies of civilians have been removed from areas around the Kyiv region. And the deaths are being investigated. They are building a case of war crimes against the Russians. The New York Post, the headline, I'm holding it up on the camera on Fox Nation, the, the front page of the New York Post, this is genocide, is the quote, quoting Vladimir Zelensky, who offered a message to Russian mothers saying, who are raising these people committing genocide? Who has raised these Russian soldiers willing to kill and rape innocent people? And the photograph features two dead bodies just lying in the street in like puddles. And the body in the foreground, the person's hands have been tied behind his or her back. And then they were just dispatched by the Russians. A mass grave found next to a church in Bukha. They also booby-trapped, the Russians did, some of these bodies with tripwires, grenades, and other things that would not only kill Ukrainian forces potentially, but also more civilians trying to bury their dead. From the Wall Street Journal piece, quote, on Bukha's west side, a man waved down Ukrainian troops in a minivan who followed him to a metal garage that was burned and smoldering. Inside, among piles of ash, lay half of a woman's body, her torso carbonized. On a rise past a grassy basketball court, a row of bodies was visible in a hole in the ground through a slit of concrete. Eight or nine torsos wrapped in plastic, faces newly lifeless, yet to gray in decay. A man looking on said he and others had found a woman dead behind a bullet-riddled apartment door. And I mentioned this just a moment ago. Down the road from City Hall, behind St. Andrew's Church, a hole held a pile of bodies thrown any which way. From the dirt tossed upon them appeared an elbow, a knee, the sole of a running shoe. Lord have mercy. Don't look away. This is happening. It's why we talk a lot about this war on this show as it continues and why I take the editorial line on this war that I have. This comes pretty close to good versus evil, black and white, in my view. And in the view of most Americans, the vast majority of us, and most people throughout the West. We've got to take a break. We might dip into this White House press briefing when we come back. There's also an update out of the United Nations, useless as that body is. We'll get to some of that later on, plus Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg this hour. 
just getting started, a very somber start to a new week. On The Guy Benson Show, we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. We were talking about these atrocities uncovered in the Kiev region. Civilian people murdered. Civilians including women and children, by the Russian military on their way out of town. And what the Russians have claimed, they've denied it, of course. They're saying they didn't do any of this. The Ukrainians did it and then posed all of these bodies for propaganda purposes to attack the Russians, which, of course, is a lie. There are many eyewitness accounts talking about what the Russians did. And now this story breaking from the New York Times, literally in the last few minutes since we came on the air here today, the Times did an in-depth analysis of satellite imagery of this town in particular, Buka. And it clearly refutes what the Russians are claiming. The bodies were not placed there after the Russians were out of that city The bodies were left there by the Russians in that city. Another disgusting lie by the Kremlin to gaslight the world. No one believes it. To try to disclaim responsibility from the war crimes being committed by their troops against civilians. And luckily, there's evidence proving that they're lying. They and their apologists Who knows how these people even live with themselves? Fox News alert. There is an ongoing White House briefing. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is taking questions on this subject. Let's dip in very briefly live. This is the White House now. Senseless killings in this particular instance and in other instances across Ukraine. The third is uh, international organizations, uh, including the United Nations, but others as well, Uh, prominent international non-governmental organizations with real credibility and expertise in this area. And then the fourth is all of you, because part of building this case is relying upon the global independent media who has images, interviews, documentation. And when he's talking about war crimes here, he's talking about the role of the press, which is timely given what The New York Times just published. The U.S. saying this plant was planned, these atrocities by the Russians. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here at the program. Podcast, free every day, the whole program, no charge to you, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. We, of course, encourage listening live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. Joining us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, 
a Fox News contributor and former national security advisor to Vice President Pence. And his book is War by Other Means. General, good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Good to be on today. Well, we've seen these maps on our TV screens and on our social media feeds of Ukraine, and it does look like in Kiev and the surrounding area, a lot of those Russian forces have withdrawn. The fact that we are seeing this trail of blood and destruction as they leave, these uh, calamities, these atrocities and human rights violations, you know, war crimes, uh, is just brutal. It's really hard to even read about, let alone to see the images, but on a military level, to see this drawdown and, I guess, a a move, a redeployment over into the east in the Donbass region, that is significant because the Russians were sort of telegraphing that they were planning on doing this. What is the significance in your mind about what the Russian military has chosen to do here, probably out of necessity? This was not what they wanted to do. They've had... Uh, their their backs against the wall in the Kiev region. So I guess they've been forced to make these changes on the fly. Yeah, guy. Look, I think, uh, simply put, to me, Russia has lost this war. And let me explain why. Uh, their original intent was to take Ukraine. That means all the way all the way to the west, past Lviv and other places. They failed to do that. They failed to take their primary objective, which was keys and decapitate the government, change the government out. Failed there. So they have failed on all the major fronts of taking down the, the country of Ukraine. So that is a strategic debacle uh, on the part of, of Putin and on his military. He's also shown – the reason I say he's lost the war also is it's shown how weak his military really is. It's not a very good military. And if you studied it, it kind of made sense, but nobody really observed that and thought their way until he could walk their way through it, that it's not designed to fight – offensive wars in large scale. It's really a defensive-natured force, and, and it's broken down in very small organizations called BTGs, battalion tactical groups. They don't find combined arms. So what he did done, he said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to now, he meaning Putin, is going to focus on the eastern part of the country and try to solidify that land bridge all the way down to Crimea, and hopefully not all the way over to Odessa, but he, he might try to get there as well. So he's kind of going, well, I'm going now to not plan. Plan A was didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Now we're Plan C, and he cannot consider that at any other level except a failure of what he intended to do, was which subjugate Ukraine, because he didn't take the government out, didn't capture the capital, didn't take the entire country all the way to the west as well. So to me, that's a strategic failure. My concern is that what you see right now is going to be he's he's going to win the peace. What I mean by that is everybody's going to settle. Well, okay, you know, he didn't get there, give up a little bit of land. Um, we'll kind of call it a draw and go from there. I wouldn't do that at all. I don't think Zelensky will either. I think now they're going to press to make sure that all that Russians leave all of Ukraine, and we should support that. We should make them pay a terrible price, uh, and the Russians pay a terrible price, and make sure that they can't do this again. Because I, if, if I was Zelensky, I wouldn't trust him at all. Uh, and he shouldn't. I mean, I, I don't think anybody should trust Putin. But we should make sure that they can't repeat what they've done in, in the horrible shelling and the destructions of, of cities like Mariupol, which is 80 percent destroyed. I mean, it's destroyed a city. Um, so I, and that's the reason I know there was a Wall Street Journal article that said it wasn't a strategic failure. To me, it is, because any time you start a war and you lose that war, uh, it's it's a big loss. There's a big L to your, next to your name. 
Um, so I think Putin's trying to get the best of it he can. But the other thing is it's people need to understand when he invaded – he used his best units. He put the best units he had on the ground in trying to take Ukraine, and some of them were just destroyed, like his, the 76th Airborne Division, their 76th Air Assault Division, which is an airborne unit, was basically destroyed when it tried to go after Kiev. The 4th Tank Division, which is one of the renowned divisions, uh, has lost an exceptional, exceptionally large number of armored vehicles. If the reports are true... The amount of armored vehicles they've lost is the equivalent of four U.S. armored divisions, which is stunning. Now, if you just cut that in half, that's still two armored divisions, which is a, a stunning number. I want to dig deeper into a few things that you just mentioned, and it raised a thought that I've been wondering about in the last few days. Occasionally you hear about hopes for a ceasefire. And I think a lot of people hear that and say, "Okay, that sounds hopeful. A ceasefire would be good. You have people not getting killed. The shooting stops for a while. And in many respects, a ceasefire is something that I think just like on a gut level, people want to see happen. Peace loving people. The other side of it, though, is should the Ukrainians, if they have the upper hand at the moment and the Russians are back on their heels and moving on to Plan C, as you called it, battered and bruised and killing civilians on their way out of town, would a ceasefire actually maybe help the Russians to lick their wounds and regroup and, you know, catch a breather and then start again a little bit more refreshed? I mean, you want to see the shooting stop, but if there's a ceasefire that actually somehow helps the Russians tactically, is it really net net a good thing. I just wonder what you think the Ukrainians ought to be doing if they're presented with a temporary ceasefire or maybe even a longer term peace offer from the Russians. You know, what is worth considering and what should be rejected? Yeah, what I would say is go back into your history books and look at the 1956 Hungarian Revolution when in Budapest where the the uh, they were winning the fight the the revolutionaries were winning the fight and the uh, they went for a ceasefire and the end of that was the Russians captured Imre Naj the leader then what we call prime minister uh, and came back in in force and destroyed forces within Budapest because they went for a ceasefire and they lost. I don't trust the Russians on a ceasefire. I, don't, I wouldn't give them a chance to lick their wounds. I think uh, Putin is not a guy that's going to roll over quite well. I think they need to keep the pressure on until Putin makes the decision that he signs some type of ceasefire agreement. Here's my concern, Guy, though. I can't find the interlocutor who's going to be allowed to do that and work to do that. There's nobody out there. I mean, you're not looking at Bennett of Israel or you're not looking at Erdogan of Turkey. My thought all along was get somebody like President Nenistu of, of Finland who knows Putin, whose his country went through the same thing in 3940 in the Russo-Finnish War, and that somebody's out there who actually has a nine-on-line country. Bring somebody like him in to try to bring some type of resolution to this because right now, you know, most wars stop because of some type of peace discussions. Well, the United States won't do it, and neither will NATO, and neither will the U.N. And the reason why the U.S. won't do it is because Putin cannot stand Biden, and Biden obviously doesn't like Putin. This, let me just tell you what I think would have happened under Trump if something like this had happened. He would have done the same thing he tried to do with the Taliban. He said to us at the time in the Situation Room, people nearly fell out of their chairs. We said, let's bring the Taliban back to Camp David. And people said, whoa. And I said, no, he's got a point. I said, this is what 
Jimmy Carter did with Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin of Israel when he brought them back to Camp David. Twelve days of negotiations came out with the Camp David Accords. If you're going to do something, have somebody serious to be able to do that. Well, we don't have that interlocutor. We're not going to do it. I don't know who else is going to do it, but we've got to find somebody to do it. And until that time occurs, you're still going to have warfare going on. And it may be a lower level. But it's going to be some brutal fighting still on the eastern part of Ukraine. So I wouldn't give the you know I'll close the circle. I wouldn't trust you know Vladimir Putin as far as he can throw the Empire State Building, which ain't real far. On the point of a longer term peace agreement, given the backdrop now of not just the invasion and the brutality and the shelling of cities and you know the whole list goes on, but now bona fide war crimes against civilians, including women and children. Doesn't that make it harder for Zelensky to agree to any sort of plan, any sort of resolution that allows Russia to keep any of the territory that they've taken? Because I think in my mind, you know, to get this war over with, Putin, I agree with you, basically has lost already. But let's say just to save some face, you give him, you know, the Donbass region, maybe a few other little areas and say, we've won. We're still, you know, an independent, sovereign country. Uh, We're going to have security agreements with Western allies, even though we're not going to join NATO. And Russia will have, you know, territorial control over this little area uh, that they sort of in some ways effectively already did. That might seem on paper like perhaps a reasonable way to end this thing. But given what the Russians are doing to Ukrainian civilians, I wonder if the appetite of Ukrainians will allow for any significant concessions to Moscow, including and for the reason that if you're giving Russia kind of official control over parts of Ukraine, because they already stole Crimea in 2014, are you consigning the Ukrainians in that territory to unknown horrors, which we're getting, you know, just a little bitter taste of in the outskirts of Kiev right now. I just seem it, it feels to me like even if Zelensky tried to rally the country around a peace deal that offered major territorial concessions or even modest concessions to the Russians, I just don't know if that's something that the people of Ukraine are going to be able to tolerate given what's happened in their country. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think you said it's absolutely correct. I don't I don't see how he can go there. It's now become almost impossible for him to do it with the, with what we have seen that is coming out in in, in the media. Uh, I, I just don't think he can go there, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's it's unfortunate, but when you look what you know, Bucha, which is that's that's the suburb you see in the videos come out of. That's just to the northwest of Kiev, where you see the the, the, the civilians lying in the streets. Uh, the, those civilians, there's other civilians shot with their hands tied behind them with zip ties. You, no, mm-hmm. you're absolutely correct. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it. That's the reason why I said earlier, the only way you're going to be able to get out of this is have a really good interlocutor that can bring the sides together. And I don't see one. That used to be the role of the United States. It is not there. Uh, and I, and there's other ones out there that it may try. Macron, God bless his soul, he's got an election he needs to worry about, but I don't think he can pull it off. Um, I don't think Erdogan of Turkey can pull it off or Bennett of Israel. So I think you're going to see, see fighting continue. And th- this is something that's not going to end tomorrow or a week from Tuesday. And my concern is, is you always have – you know, branches and sequels of a military operation, and this thing can go bad in a hurry if something really stupid happens. And so, this thing is still fraught with danger. 
I think your analysis is correct. I don't think Zelensky can go there in the near term, and I don't think Putin wants to go there either. Last question, General. There are reports that the U.S. and NATO will be supplying Ukraine with new Soviet-era tanks. So uh, not exactly new tanks, but new to the Ukrainians. How can that be helpful to the Ukrainian forces as this uh, this war really shifts to the eastern part of their country? And not to be flippant or political about this, but just a few days ago or weeks ago, the White House was saying, oh, we can't facilitate the provision of fighter jets to the Ukrainians because that's an offensive weapon. But tanks are what, exclusively defensive? I don't really understand the distinction here. No, they do have a forward gear in tanks, um, you know. So right. it is an offensive weapon. Look, I, I, the thing they need is things that Biden did not want to give them. They do need those jets. That increases the air force by one third. They do need the air defense systems to protect Lviv and other cities to the west. And, and those are the simple S three hundred systems that Bulgaria has, Slovakia has, and Greece has that we need to backfill. The tanks are nice, but they don't really need them. They have proven they, the Ukrainians, have proven that they can defeat the tank form of the Russians because of the javelin. So give them the stuff they need, you know, and we're not giving them the stuff they really need. Air defense, uh, missile defense, um, the the aircraft that they need out there, and then everything else we've been supporting in in the small arms and the javelins and things like that. Tanks are nice. They look pretty. But, man, um, they don't need them right now. They need the other stuff. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for your time as always. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. I want to get a a quick, rather, Fox News alert in here. As we saw the briefing at the White House moments ago, we took some of that live with Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Now John Kirby at the Pentagon is briefing as we speak. Let's listen. This is the first briefing since President Biden doubled down on the war criminal moniker, which I think is correct, called for war crimes trials against the Russians and this evidence spilling out of those crimes in Kiev and the surrounding area. Here's John Kirby at the Pentagon right now. Virginia-class attack submarine USS John Warner will all participate. Um, uh, and then finally, uh, while we're talking about naval issues, on Friday, uh, the DOD did release its annual Freedom of Navigation report for fiscal year 2021. I'll let you go and look at the report. I won't give you the uh, uh, the whole details, but it, it reports our comprehensive global Freedom of Navigation program that seeks to challenge excessive maritime claims in order to preserve the rights and freedoms and uses of the sea and airspace guaranteed to all nations under international law. In fiscal year 21, U.S. forces operationally challenged 30 Right, so it seems like he has moved maritime. on in this little part of the brief, uh, the briefing to other issues. But moments ago, he said that part of what the United States is doing is helping to ensure that these war crimes that we've talked about quite a lot this hour and that have really come to light over the weekend are being thoroughly documented and saved for not just posterity and history, but also potentially uh, for accountability when this war comes to an end, which may not be terribly soon for some of the reasons that we just heard this segment from Lieutenant General Kellogg. With that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, another update on this front from the United Nations. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, our colleague Jennifer Griffin now asking questions at that Pentagon briefing that we dipped into. We will continue to monitor that. 
We've also seen finally from the Biden administration a call to have Russia ejected from the U.N. Human Rights Council. Yes, Russia is a sitting active member of the Human Rights Council at the United Nations. And I actually brought this up in a monologue a few weeks ago on this show, weeks ago. And I pointed out the General Assembly can give them the boot, can throw them off of that commission by a two-thirds vote. And it took until now for Team Biden to actually even make that request. Looks like it'd be an uphill battle because there are a lot of authoritarian countries in the United Nations who are very hesitant to hold any of their fellow autocrats to account, even through relatively gentle, empty gestures like this. So I wouldn't hold your breath, but at least there should be a vote. Of course, Russia should not be on the Human Rights Council. What a joke. But here's the bigger problem. Let's say somehow they go through the process and they do manage to cobble together a two-thirds vote in the General Assembly at the U.N., and Russia is gone from the Human Rights Council. They're still on the big one, the Security Council, where they wield a veto power over anything that has teeth. That's an ongoing reality at the United Nations. And the other ongoing reality would be you would still have what, like Cuba and Venezuela and Libya and China and others on that human rights body. China which is actively engaged in a genocide, according to the U.S. government and many Western allies. China is on the Human Rights Council at the United Nations. And no one's seriously talking about throwing them off, even though that seems like textbook 101, reason to go. The Human Rights Council at the U.N. is irreparably broken. It is a sick farce. Trump was right to take us out of it not to dignify it or give it any sort of legitimacy. And the United States should get back out of that body because it cannot be helped. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday. Thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. If you can't check us out live, there's a podcast. It's free. It's on demand. It's really growing. We really appreciate that. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com, all of the info right there. GuyBensonShow.com. It is no charge to you, the podcast, every single day, including weekends. Bonus Benson. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes up 103 points today, ending at 34,921. Here with me in studio is Brett Baer, chief political anchor at Fox News, also anchor of Special Report every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern. I'll be on the panel tonight, Fox News Channel, author of multiple bestsellers, including most recently To Rescue the Republic, at Brett Baer on Twitter. Brett, good to see you. Hey, guy. We were just talking in the break about your weekend. Sounds like... You were a part of something pretty cool. Yes, yes. It was my 12th year as MC of the Children's Bowl for Children's National. And this year, it had been since 2019 since we had one in person. So this one was at the Kennedy Center. And my wife, Amy, and I were co-chairs. Um, and we raised about $4 million for children. So it was great. Cheryl Crow performed. 
it was a big, big event, so it was fun. And this is something obviously close to your family and to your heart and to your son's heart, literally. Yeah. Uh, this is you and your wife really giving back to an organization that does so much. It does amazing things. You know, Children's National does obviously saved our son's life with four open heart surgeries and 10 angioplasties. But he, it, it does amazing things for kids not only in the nation but around the world because they do a lot of research for uh, pediatric research on a number of fronts, cancer, heart, uh, everything. So it's our chance to give back and, um, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah, that's uh, something my dad would tell us all the time as kids. I also spent the weekend emceeing an event. It was down in Florida. No Cheryl Crow, though. We didn't no get Cheryl, Cheryl Crow. Crow. Maybe next time. Uh, it was fun. Brett, I want to talk about something that you did leading into the weekend. Yeah. Friday on Special Report, one-on-one with President Zelensky from Ukraine, uh, he is really making the rounds in media. He is he understands the importance of getting a message out to the world. Talk about your impressions of him in that interview and what you really took away from that discussion. Yeah, I think he's uh, clearly thinking a lot about the message that he's sending to the world. Um, he's really resilient. Um, didn't look that tired to me. I mean, we talked briefly before the interview started. Uh, he does have pretty good English, and um, so I got him to do a little English at the end, but their preference was to, to do Ukrainian and, and have the translator, which um, logistically is, is not the easiest for an interview across the world, uh, but it all worked out. Uh, I think, you know, his—the overall takeaway I had was that, um, you know, thankful, grateful for the support from the U.S., but also, you know— it's taking a lot of time, a long time to get the heavy weapons that they say they need. And understanding what the president says about not going into World War III and not having U.S. soldiers being a part of the fighting, I think that there is still this want and need for something else because they feel like they're on the cusp of a victory, in his words. Um, and clearly, you are seeing Russian forces leave areas around Kiev and refocus on the south and east. Um, and, you know, in some of those places, Ukrainians are having success in counteroffenses. We were just talking in the last hour to Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, one of our colleagues here now. And he says, in his view, from his perspective, the Russians have already lost this war. And he explained what he meant by that. But he was under no illusions that things are over and that there won't be maybe a lot of brutal fighting still to come. But he said in terms of geopolitical strategy and in terms even just militarily, what the Russians set out to do, they have failed at and they won't be able to achieve. I thought that was interesting. There's also this horrible series of revelations coming out of the, the surrounding area of the capital city of Kiev, evidence of war crimes, civilians murdered, tied behind their back and shot in the head, women raped. I mean, it's, it's just awful. We spent most of our first hour on it. Not a cheery way to start the show or the week, but it's also real. <laughs> Right. And I wonder, in your mind, is there a chance that this is yet another galvanizing event that could be something of a game changer in terms of souring the international mood even further against the Russians, who seem to be just signaling, we don't care, we're going to be as ruthless as possible? Could this, in a horrible way, almost help the Ukrainians by getting more assistance sent their direction and more uh, opprobrium and, and other consequences directed at the, at the Kremlin in Moscow? Yes, I think that's 100 percent happening. Um, there's word we don't know for sure, but Bulgaria is getting 
uh, a new uh, deal with the U.S. about F-16s. Um, that is what they wanted before giving their own MiG-29s to Ukraine. Do we know that that's happening? It seems like it's in the works. So I think you're going to have more and more countries doing more and more things in the wake of these atrocities. The more that that's on on TV, you know, and the more that Russia denies it, it's sort of like Baghdad Bob from Iraq. You know, the tanks are not coming. The Americans won't be here. And then they're rolling behind the guy talking. Uh, I think that it's, you know, you look for your, your own eyes. One of the things the Ukrainians are most concerned about is that the world will get tired of their story, that the chapter will turn and that the West will move on. And that's a fair fear, fair fear. We are, we operate in chapters here and uh, we turn the page a lot. Their fear is and that often the chapters are literally just like one TikTok video. Exactly. Then you just swipe right. <laughs> yeah. Then it's gone. Our, our collective attention span is not that long these days. That's right. And, you know, their biggest fear is that the Russians realize that. They dig in around cities. They don't have successes, but they dig in and they fortify themselves until the West turns away. And then they reconstitute, re, you know, push troops back in. Uh, so that's that's basically where they are, is getting those forces out and getting to the negotiating table in a position of advantage. Meanwhile, back here at home in Washington, D.C., the Senate Judiciary Committee expected probably at some time this afternoon or evening to have a vote on the nomination of Judge Jackson, nomination to the Supreme Court. It looks like that will tie 11 to 11, I believe. So they would have to vote in the full Senate to discharge the nomination out of the committee to the full floor. Then there'd be a debate. And in the coming days, there'd be a final vote. They can't quite do all of that yet because at least one Democratic senator has a flight delay or a flight that was canceled. So they have to get him physically into town in order to have the numbers to do it because it's 50-50. That's how razor thin it all is. I wonder, having watched this confirmation fight, it just seems like a lot of the outrage and finger pointing is even more synthetic and half-hearted than usual. I mean, I know you you have the attacks flying and racism and sexism and, you know, stuff coming in the other direction as well. But it felt from day one, hour one, like a foregone conclusion about how this was sort of going to play out. And the only drama left is Murkowski, maybe Romney. You know, it's going to be 51, 52 or 53 votes. That's it. What do you make of of this state of play and just some of the the attacks that have been leveled politically? I don't know. It just feels a little bit lower octane than it has recently. No, 100 percent. I mean, look at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings versus this hearing. Uh, Well, the Washington Post said that this was worse than Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know what they were watching. I don't think um, I don't think that America was watching as much. uh, And I just don't think that. A lot of uh, folks think that this is the one that Republicans are going to die on um, this hill because, remember, I mean, Stephen Breyer also uh, it's in the same vein, although clearly um, Judge Jackson is is more liberal uh, in some of her views, especially when it comes to crime. And uh, and that was exposed and talked about a lot in these hearings. But it's not enough to change votes, even in this razor-thin environment. And I think when you had um, Maine Senator Susan Collins say that she was going to vote for her, that was the cat's out of the bag. I mean, it's, it's done. They're going to get them out of committee, her out of committee. 
the floor will vote, and they will have 51, 52, 53 votes. Like but, even some of the senators putting out their statements opposing the nomination are like preemptively congratulating her and wishing her well on the court, right? Right, exactly. The script's written. It's written. It's written. Now, the next one, um, you know, is a potential real battle. And, and it's a, the next one, I'm like, let's wait till maybe, I don't know, 2025 sounds good to yeah, me. Exactly. At the earliest. But you, you think about how split our country is, how split the Senate is. And that likely, if you look at the polls, is going to change come November. So it's going to be a different Congress that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with if it goes as according to what it looks like now. And there's there's a lot of time that Republicans can step in it. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like it'll be a Republican control. Yeah, look, I never underestimate the ability of Republicans to screw anything up. However, speaking of pre-written scripts, it really almost feels like the Democrats are conceding that November is going to go badly for them. And the question is how badly? And the triage is already actively underway. It's rare to have Republicans and Democrats agreeing on things in Washington, but it seems like those parties both agree there's something of a red wave coming. We just don't know how tall, right? right. That, that's all the discussion in this city. When you have three dozen Democrats retiring, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of a writing on the wall. Yeah, they don't, they don't want to be a part of this anymore because they know what's coming in life in the minority, especially in the House, uh, apparently not terribly fun. Brett, I want to ask you on a much lighter note, the buzz around Tiger Woods oh, yes. in Augusta. Yes. Your thoughts. It's a great, great week. First of all, this is one of my favorite weeks of sports. You just finished. You get Final Four, the final finals after this weekend. I don't know if you're Duke or UNC or you. I'm neither, but you're the agnostic. game I watched because okay. how can you not yeah. with that matchup? And it lived up to it. It did. Yeah. It was really awesome. And the to championship watch. tonight, which we'll preview later in the show, but you've got, you know, the end of March Madness melting into May and then a tradition unlike, unlike any, any other. other. Yes. Hello, friends. Hello, friends. Um, so I think it's just tremendous. And, and Tiger's going to make this uh, announcement tomorrow. I talked to Brandel Chambly, who's a friend, and he's had it at uh, 70 30 that Tiger's playing. And he's been practicing for a number of days at Augusta. And I'm not a golf guy at all, unlike you, but when you start to hear. Tiger might be back at the Masters. Even someone like me is like, whoa. Wait, let me like, tune in. And you know who's praying is CBS. Oh, yes. Because they're like, oh, that might be good for ratings. Well, you might not see any other golfer in any of the coverage. <laughs> right. You'll just see Tiger. But um, if, for example, he plays and he makes the cut at Augusta, it could be the most watched Masters ever. But there's a lot of great players who are playing great. I'm going to go down there actually Friday for a day. A uh, buddy of mine invited me down. So that's nice. Yeah, it's really that's a good. bucket list thing. I think for a lot it's of people, awesome. just to it's see it. Tremendous. I mean, I recommend if you can go down to the practice round, even just to walk the grounds. Speaking of tremendous golfers, tremendous. Uh, you saw the statement from the president about the hole in one. Yes. Uh, we got a congratulations to him from Governor Ron DeSantis on this show last week. Nice. Are, are you? Are you believing that the hole-in-one happened? Oh, of happened? course, yes. He's, he's a pretty good golfer. No, he is. He's the best presidential golfer we've ever had. I mean, a number of presidents played golf. Uh, he's the best president to have played in the Oval Office. And, um, yeah, 100%. And the other people, you know, who endorsed the uh, hole-in-one, they stood there. So I'm 100% behind that. But it's, uh, it's fun to, to see a statement come out from a former president 
about the hole in one. Yes, and he was he was very reluctant to <laughs> confirm. Right, he's like, I, I don't like, like to, humble I don't people. Like, I don't like to brag, <laughs> but let me do it. At length. Uh, tonight on Special Report, you've got a fantastic panel, I have to say. Yes. Aside from the panel with all the analysis on the back end, what do we have on tap on Well, all uh, this Fox stuff about the war. You spent your first section of the show about uh, Bucha and the, the war criminal statement by President Biden. We've got Britt Hume. Uh, on the latest on the Hunter Biden investigation, how much that's picking up in the mainstream media and where that investigation is going on Capitol Hill, which is actually moving places and uh, has new stuff that's starting to come out. And we will have Andy McCarthy here on that subject later this hour, as a matter of fact. Brett Baer, anchor of Special Report. We'll see you at 6 o'clock Fox News Channel tonight. All right, guy. Thanks, Brett. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Brett Bayer mentioned it in our last segment there that the Hunter Biden saga continues with some new developments. And we'll be talking about it on the panel this evening on Special Report. We will also be getting to that subject matter with Andy McCarthy coming up in the next segment. Before we do that, though, just to uh, whet your appetite a little bit, Bill Maher on his HBO show on Friday night, he waded into the Hunter Biden stuff. And the new report from The Washington Post that we really delved into a little bit last week and how the media is suddenly like, oh, gosh, maybe this is a real story after all. And as I've speculated, postulated, I think they're getting out in front of something. Could there be an indictment of someone, maybe even Hunter Biden forthcoming? We don't know. But the media has decided that they need to cover the story after all. And it's not a giant lie invented by Trump. It's not Russian disinformation in a planted fake laptop. It's real. And Bill Maher, who is a liberal, but who has been annoying a lot of liberals recently, I think he just saw this for what it is. He was actually a part of it himself, poo-pooing it, downplaying it, mocking it back then. Now at least he's coming around to admitting what really happened here. Cut 25. And there, do well. I'm sorry, Hunter Biden, but you are. And, you know, you made a living being a ne'er do well who was taking money just because you were the vice president's son and you had influence. He got, I think, four point, yes, eight million dollars from Chinese energy companies to sit on the board and consult. Yeah, that was his passion in life. <laughs> energy exploration. Hooker explanation was his passion. Okay, so the New York Post got a hold of what was in the computer. And, um, you know, because the New York Post is a Republican paper. And the New York Times and the Washington Post are the Democrat paper. That's where we are again, kind of. And he goes on in Cut 26. The Republican paper, Twitter wouldn't cancel their account. Can't even report on this story. And now two years later, the New York Times and the Washington Post have come around to say, Okay, there was something there. Now, what I said at the beginning, how it came to them, it came to them through Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. So, yes, of course, when Rudy Giuliani says, I've got some evidence, you take that with a giant thing of salt. (laughs) But but not two years. It didn't take two years. It looks like the left-wing media just buried the story because it wasn't part of their narrative, and that's why people don't trust the media. It looks like the left-wing media just buried this story because it wasn't part of their narrative, and that's why people don't trust the media. 
that's inarguably correct. I think it understates the degree of the problem and the significance of that corruption. But he is right about that point. And that's a man of the left admitting it. The White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, says, oh, no problem here. Uh, president's confident. Plus, this has nothing to do with the president at all. This was cut 16 yesterday. The president is confident that his uh, family did the right thing. But again, I want to just be really clear. These are actions by uh, Hunter and his brother. They're private matters. They don't involve the president. And they certainly are something that no one at the White House is involved in. Well, the president might have involvement. And so they're not exactly private matters. That's the point. And we will explore that point a bit further up next with Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. He will join us on this and a few other topics if we have time. It is The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. That interview is next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free on demand every day. Fox News alert. We mentioned this with Brett Baer earlier, and in fact, it has come to pass as predicted. Moments ago, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on the nomination of Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court. It ended in a tie 11 to 11, directly along party lines. So for it to get to the Senate floor, there will have to be a Senate vote. And that can't happen in the full Senate until later because the Democrats don't have the votes right now because I believe it's Senator Padilla from California that missed a flight or a flight was canceled And so they've got to get him to town and then they'll have the vote and they'll succeed. And then there will be a vote on the nomination in the coming days after a debate. And barring some huge wrinkle that no one sees coming, she will be confirmed narrowly, mostly along party lines. So that's the uh, spoiler alert there. And an update on the new development just minutes ago. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former U.S. Assistant attorney for the Southern District of New York and also author of multiple books, most recently Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. Uh, Just a, a quick thought here since we're talking about the Supreme Court. Number one, I'm sort of of the opinion that I don't think it's a healthy thing for qualified nominees to not get almost any votes from the opposing party just because they were picked by the opposite party's president. I don't think that that's a great uh, way to go about business in the Senate. I recognize Democrats are primarily responsible for that new tradition. That's the standard that they have set, especially during the Trump years, and Republicans are responding in kind. But ultimately, it feels kind of broken. I wonder what you think about that, number one. And number two, uh, just your thoughts on the attacks recently against Justice Clarence Thomas based on the admittedly terrible text from his wife. Uh, I know that you were very, very skeptical of these calls for him to even recuse himself, let alone uh, resign or be impeached. Well, on uh, Justice Brown, uh, Justice Jackson and the process in general, I think, Guy, that it's a natural, unfortunate uh, deterioration of the court as an institution. I don't think it's so much that... um, Obviously, Democrats started the partisan warfare with what they did to Justice Bork and what they did to Justice Thomas, uh, and they have changed the uh, the assumptions about what a vote means. You know, probably up until 
1980 or so, uh, probably through the uh, Antonin Scalia's confirmation, the focus was on qualifications and character. Um, and then the Democrats changed it to judicial philosophy. And if judicial philosophy is going to be the determinant, and I can't say uh, that I'm uh, against that because uh, I don't think we should be putting justices on the court who believe in the organic constitution, who believe that nine unaccountable actors can change, you know, five actually can change what the constitution says, or at least what it means. Um, Once that becomes a factor, then that has to trump qualifications and character. So I think that uh, KBJ is completely qualified on paper, and she seems to be a a person of uh, stellar character. But philosophically, I couldn't disagree with her more sure. on her interpretation of the Constitution. So I and would I would just say that the deterioration that you're talking about, and your point is well taken, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor got nine Republican votes. Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Barrett, got zero Democratic votes. I mean, that's just the way this thing has slowly slid, and this one will be, you know, 51, 52, maybe 53. Right. Uh, overall, with fi- all 50 Democrats and almost none of the Republicans, that's sort of what everyone in D.C. recognizes is going to happen. And then you've got the activists not only celebrating Jackson, but really going hard after Clarence Thomas. They feel like they have something of an opening Maybe just to undermine – they don't think they're going to get rid of him uh, through this, but they want to undermine his legitimacy, which is why you're hearing talk of impeachment, for example. Uh, Your response to that? I think he needs to be aggressively defended because you can't have unilateral disarmament on this kind of thing. And I'd say two things narrowly about it. One is uh, if you look at the past performance of justices on the court, their own activities – which bear on the cases that they sit on have not been enough in many instances to uh, to disqualify themselves. So, for example, Elena Kagan, who's a, an excellent justice, I, I don't agree with her. I wouldn't vote for her, but she's you know there's nothing uh, at all wrong with her quality-wise in terms of her credentials and her uh, and everything else. Um, she helped the Obama administration formulate policy and a strategy to defend Obamacare, and then sat on the case. Uh, Justice Breyer, who's another person whose character is fine and whose whose qualifications are obvious, he was the parent. He was basically uh, the guy who created the sentencing guidelines. He did it, you know, he pushed them through as a staffer on the Judiciary Committee when he was a lawyer, uh, and then he was on the original sentencing guidelines committee that promulgated the guidelines when he was a judge on the first circuit he sat on the sentencing guidelines case which by the way guy like the obama case was a five to four case so if he had you know disqualified himself it would have been a big deal if they don't have to disqualify themselves over their personal involvement of issues that become uh, come before the court how you could argue that a justice has to get out because of the political activism of his wife, to me, is absurd, number one. And number two, if it happens that Ginny Thomas – and I, in interest of full disclosure, Ginny Thomas is a friend of mine. I'm very fond of her. If it turns out that she's a witness in a proceeding, uh, or at least a central witness in a proceeding, and we know that the, you know, the latest reports are that the, the January 6th committee at the very least may want to speak to her, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that comes before the court. I, I imagine that 
Justice Thomas will recuse because then you should under those circumstances. But other than that, the rule is very clear that if she's not a lawyer for a party and she doesn't have a financial interest uh, in the outcome, and I would argue if she's, if she's just an ancillary witness that somebody decides to try to call to make an argument that, that he should be recused, where she's not like a, a, a central actor in the, in the facts of the case, there's no reason for him to recuse under those circumstances. Well, and I, I did see, Andy, some, uh, some on the left were circulating videos that they found of Clarence Thomas talking about how much he loves his wife. Like this was like an indictment of him. I'm like, oh, you got him now. <laughs> he, he loves yeah, his wife. Yeah. Good work, you guys. That's really damning stuff. Uh, Andy, I want to ask you about Hunter Biden and the developments in that case. Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, was asked about this on ABC News this weekend. Uh, Here's part of the answer. We played it earlier. We'll play it again. Cut 16. The president is confident that his uh, family did the right thing. But again, I want to just be really clear. These are actions by uh, Hunter and his brother. They're private matters. They don't involve the president. And they certainly are something that no one at the White House is involved in. The president is confident that his family did the right thing. They're private matters. They don't involve the president. Andy, break this down for us. Well, that certainly wasn't the tune he was singing during the 2020 campaign when they were trying to claim and and Biden and the rest of the campaign hopped on board that absurd letter from the uh, Democratic connected uh, intelligence operatives uh, or former intelligence officials who out of whole cloth contended that the Hunter Biden laptop, which was obviously authentic if you looked at the contents of it, might be Russian disinformation. They couldn't even come out and say it was Russian disinformation, but that didn't stop the administration from running for it, running with it. So now it's so obvious that, A, it's his materials, and B, that he's under a serious criminal investigation. Now it becomes, well, you know, that really doesn't have anything to do with us or anybody at the White House. And on its face, that's ridiculous because, first, Biden said during the campaign that he never discussed his son's business with him. That's been disproved by the materials on the, uh, on the, on the laptops. Um, Biden said that, uh, you know, he had no interest at all in Hunter's business affairs, and he obviously seems to be quite entangled in them. The China one, there's an explicit discussion of a 10 percent share going to Biden. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, guy, that that's criminal. I would point out to people that 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 transaction, as I recall, it happened in 2017 when he was out of office. So, well, except except just to say he it becomes a problem because we don't know whether it was proper or improper. Right. It disproves what the president said as a candidate and as president that he never had any of these conversations. He wasn't involved in any of it whatsoever. That does not seem to be true. And you have the White House chief of staff saying, oh, these are private matters that don't involve the president. Uh, At the very least, we don't know that to be true. And there's a strong indication that that is also not true, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I think it, there's a, the stronger indication is that it is not true, uh, no, number one. And number two, I think, you know, it's sleazy whether it's illegal or not. So obviously the reason right. they want to distance him from the fact that his son was monetizing his political influence and he had to have known about it because 
if he's the guy he purports to be, which is this, you know, sophisticated, smooth operator, yet he didn't By connecting know people, conversations like with his dad, right, who is the former vice president, now the president. 20 seconds, Andy, is there a chance Hunter Biden gets indicted here? I think it's a strong chance, but I'm not sure, Guy, it'll be anything more than a tax case because the, the Foreign Agent Registration Act is a tough case, and the money laundering you know, depends on the underlying money being criminal, which hasn't been proved. Okay. We will be watching that closely, but a strong chance some sort of indictment could come down, according to Andy McCarthy, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. It's time, once again, for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. So this stems from a very gross series of tweets by someone called Jonathan Perkins. And there was a whole category of these tweets in recent days when Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was in the hospital, then under fire because of what his wife had been texting on and around January 6th, though he was facing a fresh round of vitriol and hatred from the left. And that hatred manifested itself in the Twitter feed of this guy, Perkins, who said that Clarence Thomas, quote, can choke as far as he's concerned. And there was a lot of people just wishing death on the justice which is, of course, very classy. And these are the types of people who truly believe that they're the good ones in society. We're all terrible, and they are on the side of light and righteousness. And if that means wishing death upon someone, well, it's uh, for a good cause. It's amazing the gymnastics that people go through mentally to justify behaving awfully. And Clarence Thomas really brings out the worst in some folks. So who is Jonathan Perkins? Why do we care at all? He is the director, get ready for this, of race and equity at UCLA. So he's a woke enforcer at a state-sponsored, taxpayer-funded, major, prominent university. He's their woke guy, the director of race and equity at UCLA, saying that as far as he cares, Clarence Thomas, quote, can choke. So I'm bringing that up only because this guy also has a history that is interesting. As a law student, more than a decade ago, he claimed that he was the target of police misconduct and brutality. And he went public with those allegations and ultimately admitted that they were lies. Back in 2011, after an investigation into his allegations, Perkins, quote, acknowledged that his story had been a fabrication. I wrote the article, he said, to bring attention to the topic of police misconduct. The events in the article did not occur. His alma mater's honor committee charged Perkins with lying, which could have gotten him kicked out of law school, but they ultimately decided to acquit him and sort of sweep it under the rug and move on. So here is someone who decided, made a choice as a law student, so a young adult to accuse the police of something that they did not do to him because there was a larger truth. This is how a lot of the hoaxers operate. 
They decide there's a larger truth that must be told. They want to be part of the larger truth, so they make accusations on a hate crime or some sort of incident involving graffiti or someone leaving a nasty racist note on a check at a restaurant. Like, we've seen this category of behavior before many times. And when it turns out that it's not true, that it's a lie, they say, oh, well, well, maybe the specifics didn't really go this way, but the broader point is accurate. So this guy as a law student said, okay, the allegations that I made publicly and even wrote down didn't actually happen, but I wanted to shine a spotlight on this type of thing. Now, to me, that's the kind of behavior, unbelievably dishonest and certainly unethical, that should be a red flag that would maybe impact your ability to do certain types of work moving forward in your life, especially if you're kind of unrepentant. But instead, in this case, this individual was hired by a very well-known public university to come and be one of their woke enforcers on diversity and inclusion and equity, someone who made up a story to whip up race-related tension and resentment, slandering police and admitting that it wasn't true later. And they were like, that's our man. Let's bring him in to do this important work for us. The incentive structure is so deeply broken at so many of our institutions. The existence of these DEI directors who are getting paid often six figures to do this kind of stuff and enforce groupthink and thought police type of work, that's an issue unto itself. And then to have this type of person with this history populating those important positions in a position to sit in judgment of other students who might not share his deeply committed left-wing activism – That is frightening. The UCLA community is not well suited by someone with that background. And it's like he's absolutely committed to reinforcing that reality with tweets like the ones he fired off about a sitting Supreme Court justice, a man of color, upon whom he effectively wished death because of ideological differences. That is the person UCLA has put in this position. And not by accident. This stuff, in a lot of their minds is a feature, not a bug. And therein lies one of the biggest problems. Such is the warped mentality and the upside-down incentives of woke culture. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. On this Monday, and a final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Chad Wolf former acting DHS secretary, reacts to the border crisis and the upcoming Title 42 changes from the Biden administration. It's a one-on-one in-studio interview that you don't want to miss. Straight ahead. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
The happy hour has arrived on this Monday here on The Guy Benson Show. From our studios in Washington, D.C., the Tony Snow Radio Studio, I am Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day if you cannot listen to the program as it airs between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is really good, really refreshing and delicious. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com for everything you need to know there, including where it's sold near you or to order online, which is what we do. TheLongDrink.com. With me here in studio, sitting across from me, is Chad Wolf, former acting secretary of DHS and now AFPI's chairman of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration. And it's great to see you, Mr. Secretary. Well, it's good to be with you. We've done this over the phone many times. Many times. But now we're getting back sort of to normal. So welcome to the studio. I want to start with just your overall analysis. And we've been covering this a lot on this Title 42 issue and the announcement now made formal that next month, toward the end of next month, the Biden administration is going to rescind that tool to expel most single male illegal immigrants. And everyone is admitting, including the Biden administration, that it's going to cause a huge explosion in an already out-of-control border crisis. Uh, You were on the front lines of this at DHS. Your reaction on a policy level? So, you know, my reaction is this is a devastating decision by the administration for a couple of different reasons. Uh, One is, you know, Border Patrol and others along that border have been in a crisis now for 14 months. And by the you know administration's own words, own viewpoints, is the decision that they have they took last Friday uh, for you know the third week in May is actually going to make the crisis worse. They admit that everyone admits that everyone knows that that is going to occur, and yet they still have gone down this road of ending Title Forty Two and not putting anything in its place. So it's one thing to end a national uh, health emergency, right? It's always going to be a, a temporary in nature. They should have known this. They should have planned for this. And they and what you do is if you take away Title 42, you then put in place other procedures and other programs and other policies in place to address the crisis on the border. Instead, what you have is the administration saying it's really bad now. It's going to be really bad in the third week of, of May when we when we take this uh, public health authority away. And we're going to you know, make it much worse. And that's just going to have to be life. And it's just that the absurdity of that is just it's hard to comprehend when I know because I help lead an effort actually to put policies in place along that border that disincentivize illegal behavior, that holds individuals accountable, that gets people that need asylum protections, that get it gets it to them quickly. Uh, while you're not mass releasing hundreds of thousands of individuals in that catch and release program that we often talk about into American communities every day, there is an alternative way to do this. But for a variety of different reasons, this administration has decided we're not going to do any of those hard decisions. We're not actually going to protect Americans and communities along that border. Instead, we're just going to go with this catch and release uh, policy, which is very, very devastating. And this is a choice that they're making. I mean, it's so important to just think about that and reflect on that specifically, they don't have to do this. They don't have to engage in any number of these policies that they've decided to implement. They have made a proactive choice, a decision. This is the way they want to govern. And in this case, as I mentioned a moment ago, they are admitting that they know it is going to have a terrible effect and they're going to do it anyway. And You just said that they could say, all right, fine, Title 42 will be expiring. However, in its place, 
will be A, B, and C, mitigation policies, enforcement policies. Uh, They don't really have interest in mitigation or enforcement. But if they did, what could they do? If they came to you, which they never would, and asked for advice, (laughs) fat chance. But if they did for whatever reason, you know, they drunk dialed you being like, hey, what would you do? What would you tell them? So there's a couple of different ways to look at this. One, to answer your earlier question, which is this is a choice they've made. They didn't just make this choice back on last Friday. They made this choice on day one of this administration when they decided to eliminate a variety of very successful programs that kept that border under control in, in an orderly fashion, whether that was the Remain in Mexico program, whether that was the asylum cooperative agreements, halting border wall construction, the list goes on and on and on. And they made those decisions without any – any analysis without any. No, it's just like if Trump did it or yeah. it happened on his watch, it has to go away. And it's Absolutely. not like they were saying the family separation policy that was in place for a short period of time that I was critical of for various reasons, then it went away. It's, it would be one thing if they said, we are not going to do that right. for these specific humanitarian reasons, et cetera. But it was just sort of like baby with the bathwater, just throw it all out the window Absolutely. and see what happens. And so when you talk about Title 42, in many ways, Title 42 has actually masked the the crisis that we see at the border every day. And why do I say that? Because if you look at the data and you look at the numbers, they remove somewhere between 70,000 and 90,000 individuals every month using Title 42. So as bad as you think it is, and it's, and it's bad, and the images that, that we see about flights going around the country or mass releases on, on, on street corners around the country, that's without an extra seventy to 90,000 individuals every month being released into the United States because heretofore they've been able to use Title 42 to, to uh, remove them back to Mexico mainly. But if they're no longer going to do that, they're no longer going to have that tool in their toolbox. So think about it. If you're the Border Patrol, they've stopped border wall construction. They don't do Remain in Mexico. They don't do the asylum cooperative agreements, and the list goes on. The only tool remaining in your tool belt right now is Title 42. It's the only thing. That is stopping a crisis from turning into a catastrophe. Right, because they're not really doing much deportation at all. At all. Right, they've, they've actually bragged about how little deportation they're That's doing right. and how few people they want to deport and the many ways people can avoid getting deported even if they've been convicted of additional That's crimes. That's exactly right. That's their policy. So you have a huge influx, a huge decrease in deportations. Title 42 is sort of this last silver bullet that's been used a lot to try to keep – Frankly, an out-of-control crisis, slightly less out-of-control. Correct. And then the guardrails are just going to be blown off. So it's going to be unlike anything that we've seen. So, And that's just dealing with the numbers that we see today, right, which is around somewhere between 170 to 200,000 illegal yeah, What's it going to be like in May? Well, what, what the cartels and the smugglers and the traffickers are going to do is they're going to start advertising this to folks south of the border to say, look, you couldn't get in, you couldn't remain if you're a single adult. But guess what? Now you can now you can because they don't they're not using title 42 anymore and they know what that means a lot better than we do and so they're going to advertise that so you not only have to deal with uh your everyday numbers that you see now you got to deal with a surge of numbers that are coming and again there is no policy in place this administration looks at the crisis on the border and what i think the majority of the americans see is this is out of control this is illegal behavior and we're incentivizing it and this administration looks at that problem on the border and says i've got a capacity issue I just need to surge more people and more resources down there to process more people into the country quicker so that they're not under a bridge. They're not overcrowding Border Patrol facilities. And so I don't have pictures taken of, quote, unquote, a crisis. And as long as I process, yeah, as long as I process them quickly, 
we're good. There is no crisis, nothing to see here. And that's exactly the wrong move and the wrong approach because, in essence, you're just continuing to incentivize the problem. What would disincentivize it in a way that is, okay, it's not going to be Trump walking through the door, right? Right. If it's still going to be a Democratic administration with a team that is often looking over its shoulder at the progressive left and they're pro-illegal immigration activists, frankly, are there things that they could do that would maybe be kind of palatable to that crowd that would still not be this bad? Or are they taking all the stuff that works off the table? I, th- I think they're taking most things that work off the table, unfortunately, because they have they have come in and they have governed, uh, uh, you know, the department to the far left of their party. And so things that would be common sense, restoring the rule of law are just off the table. So the first thing they can do is actually implement the Remain in Mexico program. They've been court ordered to do it. Um, they're really only doing it in a handful of places, and it's it's single digit numbers every day. It's like it's a joke. It's it's comp- technical compliance right. that is not real compliance. But if you put that in place across the border, and you're uh, you know having hundreds and thousands of individuals into that program every day, it starts to work. It starts to work because it starts to root out that fraud in the asylum system, and people stop coming because they know they don't have a meritorious claim to asylum. And they don't want to wait in Mexico. So it serves a variety of different purposes. So if you don't have that, if you don't hold people accountable for breaking the law, then there's not much more than you can do. Then you're essentially becoming facilitators. And what I would always say, because, again, all these individuals— Just to jump in, it's not just letting someone slide for violating our sovereignty, which is breaking the law. That is true. In many cases, countless cases, we are then rewarding it by putting them on airplanes and, like, flying them to a city of their choice inside the United States. And then if they go to that city of their choice and they commit another crime within a whole expanding range of, you know, categories and they're convicted of that crime, the administration has said out loud, we are still not going to deport you. I I can't imagine a more irresponsible approach to this. So what I would say is we often say the federal government over the last 14 months is the last um, chain in that human or the last link in that human smuggling chain. When these individuals have paid hundreds of thousands or not, I would say thousands of dollars to get across that border in a variety of different ways, they then it's now up to the federal government to say, okay, we've apprehended you. Now we're going to connect you to your family members in Chicago or Seattle or New York. We're going to buy you that plane ticket. We're going to buy you that bus ticket or that train ticket, and we're going to connect you. So we're going to be that last link or that la- in that human smuggling chain, and it's absolutely ridiculous. But that that is the that's what we call catch and release. That that is the the policies that this administration has put back into play. It sounds like parody. It sounds like a parody that conservatives would invent in making fun of what they might do on the left. Except it's not parody. It's real. It's been happening. It's totally off the rails. And for reasons that we've discussed here, it's about to get significantly worse, both seasonally and then with the policy on top of it. I mean, it's just going to explode. Last two questions. Number one, there was a FoxNews.com piece earlier. One border sector in Arizona has seen a 579 percent spike in these migrant encounters over the last fiscal year. That does not count known or unknown gotaways. Those are just encounters. You know, 579 percent is a staggering number. What is the effect on Border Patrol and ICE morale, the people who are putting themselves at risk to protect the border and enforce our sovereignty yeah. who are being basically told they're not allowed to do that? Right. So just like we, we're experiencing the worst border crisis our country has ever seen by strictly looking at the data and the numbers, 
ICE and CBP are experiencing the worst morale problem that they have ever experienced in their life. You have agents sitting down there saying, I I am in the thick of this. I am in a crisis each and every day, day after day, week after week, month after month. And I don't see any help coming from my leadership back at in D.C., if you leadership of, of DHS or from the president or the vice president. I can't even get the president down here to look at the border. I can't really get the vice president down here either. None of them will come down and experience what She's we're She's in charge of it, supposedly. Exactly. And so they see this. And then at the very, you know, the only thing that they're holding on to is Title 42. It's the only tool left in their tool belt before this thing just, just springs wide open. And now you have an administration who I can almost guarantee you did not ask Border Patrol about Title 42, did not ask their views on whether they should keep it or not, has just made a, a decision. We're going to remove that as well, and good luck. Uh, good luck meaning, you know, we'll surge some more resources. We'll give you some more tent cities so you can process migrants quicker. But that's not their job. Their job is to be on the line, protecting that border day in and day out from not only bad people, but illegal narcotics, which are killing Americans every single day. Right. And if they can't do that because they're in tent cities – or tent facilities, Doing clerical work, processing people, that is a national security issue. Right, because their attention is totally diverted. Right. And people with bad intentions who don't want to get caught, many of them do want to get caught, processed and released into America. Many don't want to get caught because that tends to be the more dangerous element. It becomes much easier for them to do that because yeah. there are fewer people doing that enforcement work. I mean, it's it's a nightmare. And the last question here goes to the blame game, the preemptive blame game already underway. The White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, on Sunday, so yesterday morning, said really this is Congress's fault because they haven't dealt with immigration in a comprehensive way and they haven't given enough money for this processing. So it really comes down to the purse strings and Congress. Your response? I I think that that is probably the seventh or eighth um, excuse that the, the administration has used. If you remember, first it was cyclical, then it was seasonal, then it was Trump's fault. Um, It it was everything. It's everything but the actual policies that they pursue, which is just it's a joke. I think most Americans see through that. And I would just say in 2018 and 2019, when we had a a border crisis at DHS, Congress was not helpful. They didn't pass anything. But yet we were still able to get it under control. That is, I think, a worthwhile historical point that explodes this particular excuse that they are now test driving again. It's everyone's fault but their own when indeed it is their own policies, rhetoric and otherwise, uh, that bears the lion's share of the blame. And it's only going to get worse, unfortunately, and we laid out part of the reason why here. In our conversation with Chad Wolf, former acting secretary at the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump. Mr. Secretary, very good to see you. Thanks for coming in studio. It's good to be in, in studio. And we will take a quick break. When we come back, the happy hour continues on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. Looks like another one bites the dust over in the VP's office. Kamala Harris's deputy chief of staff, the latest in a long line of departures from that team. The turnover is extraordinary. The churn is unparalleled. And there's a reason for that, and the reason happens to be the principal in the office. So we've been following some of the vice president's answers in interviews and things that she says when she's giving public remarks. We have some fun with it, as we should. I mean, it's it's almost like its own comedy hour. Just listening to or reading out loud verbatim the words of the vice president. She did an interview on Friday with Joy Reid, 
as you can imagine, these are just two high-performing intellectual titans at the top of their game going back and forth, and it did not disappoint. Joy Reid asked a question about Vladimir Putin, and the vice president rambled for more than two minutes in a meandering white-knuckle thrill ride of an answer where you never knew what she was going to say next and how she was going to kind of divert and dodge the actual question further. And you could tell she wasn't quite sure either. So there was a little bit of excitement there being on that ride together with her, both of you equally unsure what was going to come out of her mouth next. You can look it up. It was shared widely on the Internet over the weekend. All she had to do was memorize President Biden's final answer on this question because they changed it a few times. He landed eventually after walkbacks and unwalkbacks and all of it in one spot. She could have just echoed him, but she didn't. She also had this little gem, this nugget in the same interview, Cut 23. So I am here um, because this is a community in the Mississippi Delta that has a, a, a long history of, of being part of America's history, um, including having the needs that, that should be met. Including having the needs that should be met is what she said there. But you caught that. This was, I think, some really good astute analysis from the vice president about this area of the country having, quote, a long history of being part of American history. And you can't argue with that, can you? I'll have to add that to the montage. In fact, we have. Cut 24. We will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen the significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. That has a a, a long history of, of being part of America's history. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. (laughs) We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. And earlier on today's program, in our last hour... We welcome back in studio Brett Baer, chief political anchor at Fox News and anchor of special report every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. I'll be on the panel tonight. He's also author of To Rescue the Republic, and he was here with me earlier. Here's part of that conversation with our colleague, Brett Baer. Talk about your impressions of him in that interview and what you really took away from that discussion. Yeah, I think he's uh, clearly thinking a lot about the message that he's sending to the world um, he's really resilient, um, didn't look that tired to me. I mean, we talked briefly before the interview started. Uh, he does have pretty good English. And um, so I got him to do a little English at the end, but their preference was to, to do Ukrainian and, and have the translator, which um, logistically is, is not the easiest for an interview across the world. Uh, but it all worked out. Uh, I think... You know, his the overall takeaway I had was that, um, you know, thankful, grateful for the support from the U.S., but also, you know, it's taking a lot of time, a long time to get the heavy weapons that they say they need and understanding what the president says about not going into World War Three and not having U.S. soldiers being a part of the fighting. I think that there is still this want and need for something else because they feel like they're on the cusp of a victory in his words 
Um, and clearly, you are seeing Russian forces leave areas around Kiev and refocus on the south and east. Um, and, you know, in some of those places, Ukrainians are having success in counteroffenses. We were just talking in the last hour to Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, one of our colleagues here now. And he says in his view, from his perspective, the Russians have already lost this war. And he explained what he meant by that. But he was under no illusions that things are over and that there won't be maybe a lot of brutal fighting still to come. But he said in terms of geopolitical strategy and in terms even just militarily, what the Russians set out to do, they have failed at and they won't be able to achieve. I thought that was interesting. There's also this horrible series of revelations coming out of the the surrounding area of the capital city of Kiev, evidence of war crimes, civilians murdered, tied behind their back and shot in the head, women raped. I mean, it's it's just awful. We spent most of our first hour on it. Not a cheery way to start the show or the week, but it's also real. (laughs) And I wonder in your mind, is there a chance that this is yet another galvanizing event that could be something of a game changer in terms of souring the international mood even further against the Russians who seem to be just signaling, we don't care, we're going to be as ruthless as possible. Could this, in a horrible way, almost help the Ukrainians by getting more assistance sent their direction and more uh, opprobrium and, and other consequences directed at the, at the Kremlin in Moscow? Yes, I think that's 100 percent happening. Um, there's word we don't know for sure, but Bulgaria is getting uh, a new uh, deal with the U.S. about F-16s. Um, that is what they wanted before giving their own MiG-29s to Ukraine. Do we know that that's happening? It seems like it's in the works. So I think you're going to have more and more countries doing more and more things in the wake of these atrocities. The more that that's on on TV, you know, and the more that Russia denies it, it's sort of like Baghdad Bob from Iraq. You know, the tanks are not coming. The Americans won't be here. And then they're rolling behind the guy talking. Uh, I think that it's, you know, you look for your your own eyes. One of the things the Ukrainians are most concerned about is that the world will get tired of their story, that the chapter will turn and that the West will move on. And that's a Fair fear. Fair fear. We are, we operate in chapters here, and uh, we turn the page a lot. Their fear is and that— And often the chapters are literally just like one TikTok video. Exactly. They just swipe, right? <laughs> yeah. Then it's gone. Our, our collective attention span is not that long these days. That's right. And, you know, their biggest fear is that the Russians realize that. They dig in around cities. They don't have successes, but they dig in and they fortify themselves until the West turns away— and then they reconstitute, re, you know, push troops back in. Uh, so that's that's basically where they are: is getting those forces out and getting to the negotiating table in a position of advantage. Meanwhile, back here at home in Washington D.C., the Senate Judiciary Committee expected probably at some time this afternoon or evening to have a vote on the nomination of Judge Jackson, nomination to the Supreme Court. It looks like that will tie. 11 to 11, I believe. So they would have to vote in the full Senate to discharge the nomination out of the committee to the full floor. Then there'd be a debate. And in the coming days, there'd be a final vote. That full exchange with Brett Baer, our Fox News friend and colleague, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, part of the free podcast, every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When we come back, the home stretch, well, it's March Madness coming to a close in April as the NCAA championship game is tonight. What a final four, especially the showdown between Duke and UNC. Matt with sports coming up, plus a very special message unrelated from producer Christine. We'll get to that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Very happy to have you all along. And tonight, after, of course, I check out the download of the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com, which you can get every day, no charge on demand. You can also subscribe, which we recommend. I will be watching later in the evening the NCAA championship game in men's basketball, which will feature the Kansas Jayhawks and the North Carolina Tar Heels. The Jayhawks pretty easily beating Villanova in the Final Four, the early game on Saturday, and then the much-anticipated Duke-UNC epic showdown, which was epic. It lived up to its billing and all of the hype, and joining me now to discuss both the weekend and the game tonight is Matt Napolitano, sports reporter at Fox News Headlines 24-7, at Sirius XM Channel 115, you can follow him on Twitter, at Matt Napolitano. Matt, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. So just quickly, let's talk about the Jayhawks. I think they are clearly favored tonight. They're a really good team. I actually saw them in person this year at Allen Fieldhouse when they demolished Baylor. And I'll be rooting for Kansas because my father-in-law is a Jayhawk. And so there's a family connection there. It was cool to have attended one of their games at home this year. Nothing against UNC, even though I still didn't quite get over the whole academic scandal that they have. That doesn't really play into my rooting interest tonight. But what Kansas did in back-to-back games in the Elite Eight where they were down at halftime and then just poured it on Miami in the second half in a total drubbing where they were trailing and then won a blowout – And then Villanova, a very good team. They were just in control of that game. The Jayhawks were. They are a favorite for a reason. Yes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they really proved themselves, like you mentioned, in the Elite Eight and the Final Four. It looked like Miami was really going to give a run for their money in the Elite Eight. But you know what? That second half just completely changed things around. And that's what we've seen a lot of out of Kansas. They've been a second-half team for a good chunk of this tournament. They showed it against Creighton. They showed it against Providence. The only big difference maker was the Final Four where they just ran wire to wire on Nova. But this is an incredibly talented team led by Ochai Agbaji. He's been an unbelievable standout. He's going to be heading for the NBA draft. After all this is said and done, he's definitely going to be at least somewhere in the top ten in terms of where he lands. Remy Martin has been impressive off the bench for the Jayhawks. They seem to have everything running on all cylinders, which is really impressive when you consider in that Midwest region of the bracket where Kansas was the one seed. A lot of people kind of rode them off because it was a pretty stacked region of the bracket. I mean, you had the likes of Providence. You had Auburn, Wisconsin. A lot of people really didn't see KU making having the breakout here. And lo and behold, Bill Self and company now have a chance at their fourth national title in program history. Yep. 40 minutes away from doing that, potentially, against UNC with the Tar Heels beating their hated rival, Duke. And look. A Duke-UNC game in the Final Four under any circumstances would be kind of 10 out of 10 drama in terms of college Mm -hmm. basketball and storylines. But you add in the fact that Mike Krzyzewski was coaching perhaps his final game, and it turned out to be his final game as the head coach, 
at Duke at the helm in Durham for decades to go out with a loss to UNC in the final four is about as intense as it gets. And, Matt, you go back to the end of the regular season. UNC beat Krzyzewski and Duke at Cameron Indoor in the final game in Durham ever coached by Coach K. That was a big accomplishment for UNC. Their fans were very excited about sending him off that way. But then they had an opportunity, Duke did, to get the ultimate revenge in the Final Four on a much bigger platform. And then the Tar Heels come back and beat them again. That was a game that people were, I think, you know, looking forward to and talking about for days. And it was one of those examples where a game with a ton of attention truly lived up to the attention. It was a nail-biter, a thriller back and forth. And the Tar Heels just made really one or two bigger shots than Duke did. They struggled from the free throw line, the Blue Devils, at the very end of the game. And, you know, my hat is off to Coach K. I've never been a Duke basketball fan, but what he's done there is amazing, and he is a legend. But the bragging rights for UNC are going to last a long time. I mean, the celebration Saturday night in Chapel Hill after UNC beat Duke, you'd think they had won the championship. You'd think they had won it all because of the fact that they handed down loss number 368, which is going to sting forever for Coach K. And the fact that it lost the last one came at the hands of the Tar Heels. Really, UNC flew under the radar for this entire tournament all year long, quite frankly, because a lot of people didn't think they'd have it in them under first-year head coach Hubert Davis that they weren't going to be able to really power through. But they really had the the odds stacked against them, and they managed to persevere. I mean, they just... Well, they're peaking at the right time, because I watched them them a little bit during the regular season, and they were... You know, underwhelming they, they at brave. times, they were not but brave. they were really hitting their stride when it mattered. And they've just been one of these teams with a lot of talent, obviously, that's put it together. Right. And here they are in the championship game tonight. I mean, you saw Caleb Love in that final four game against Duke. You know, it looked like he was running out of steam there in the first half. But the second half, he really just delivered, bringing out 20 points after that, including the dagger three that really sealed it for the Tar Heels to advance on to tonight. It's a really talented group. Armando Baycott is going to be playing in this game. He did suffer the ankle injury on Saturday, but he's looking good to go for this finale, which is a huge deal for the Tar Heels. They're going to definitely need him to step up on defense against this KU team because they are definitely powerful in the paint. they got a lot of big guys. It's going to be a fun matchup to watch, but UNC earned their keep to get here. You know, they didn't have it easy. They took down Baylor. They took down UCLA. You know, they took down Duke. It was not easy to get here. Yeah, you know, people say, oh, well, they had to go up against the 15th seed in St. Peter's in the Elite Eight, and it wasn't the same St. Peter's team. But you know what? You're still going up against the Cinderella. Anything can happen. And UNC didn't let that get the better of them. They showed them who's boss. They welcomed them to the big leagues, in a sense. And now here they go, going for their seventh title in program history tonight. And Hubert Davis is trying to become the, I believe he's just the second coach uh, to ever win in his first year uh, since Steve Fisher of Michigan. And it'd be for the eighth seed UNC, the lowest seed to ever win the NCAA tournament since Nova and Raleigh Massimino back in 1985. One more note and stat on Coach K, and this blew me away. Did you know, Matt Napolitano, that with his loss to UNC and Duke's loss on Saturday night, Coach K's all-time record against the Tar Heels is exactly 50 wins and 50 losses. Isn't that incredible? It's Isn't amazing. Incredible? I mean, just the, the rivalry going back and forth. The fact that he as a head coach faced any program 100 times is unbelievable. <laughs> and for it to be UNC and to come out exactly 500, I mean, that gives you a sense of why that rivalry is as good and deep 
as it is. Absolutely. There's nothing quite like that battle for Tobacco Road. Really, there's just nothing quite like it. And you know what? It continues on with a new generation. Curious to see how it is under John Shire now as the new head coach over of the Blue Devils and now with Hubert Davis taking over the Tar Heels. It's definitely going to be interesting what's to come in years ahead. Who do you have tonight? Plain and simple, i got to go Kansas. I think you expect a second-half surge out of the Jayhawks, and I think they come away with this one. It's going to be a close one, though. I don't see North Carolina going down without a fight. What makes me curious is Armando Baycott's ankle injury, how much it really is impacting him and how much he's going to be on the floor. If he's at his peak, it'll be a harder contest for KU, but if he's not feeling too well and he's having an off night, it could be easy money for the Jayhawks. That definitely could be, and they're extremely talented. If they play anywhere near the level that they've been playing at, uh, I think that they'll probably win, but you never know. I mean, this is the beauty of March Madness and the tournament. You have one off game, you start to doubt yourself, something goes wrong, and things can swing. But on behalf of my father-in-law and a bunch of his friends in Kansas and in Lawrence, I'll just say rock chalk, and I'll be watching tonight. Matt Napolitano, sports reporter at Fox News Headlines 24-7, Sirius XM Channel 115. Matt, always enjoy it. We'll be watching. Sounds good, guy. Enjoy. Now, before we say goodbye to all of you, and I'll remind you I'm on special report tonight, coming up on the panel with Brett Bayer and company, so hope to see you there on Fox News Channel We want to quickly bring in producer Christine, who has a very special message for a very special person, and we want to allow her the opportunity to deliver it here. Hello, Christine. Hello, Guy Benson. I know you were riveted, riveted to that conversation about college basketball. You are a hardcore sports fan. You know so many intricacies, and I know you really just want to comment on sports right now. But we're almost out of time, so I will I will relieve you of that burden. I know that you you know are disappointed about that. But what other message do you have for us? Well, today is a fabulous day because it is my daughter Megan's birthday, and she is turning nine years old today. I have a nine-year-old. So I just want to say a very, very happy birthday to my sweet, smart, definitely sassy, definitely stubborn, but... Oh, so lovable daughter. Um, oh, I'm going to cry right now. Ah, I love her so much. And she literally, as I said, on my, if it's not on Facebook or Instagram, it did it really happen. I said, if I've only done. What about Twitter? Excuse me. You have to plug your Twitter. Oh, right. I, I forgot to post. I, that, okay. At Cookies Jar 1988. Right, but should I be posting pictures of Megan on there? Is that an okay thing to do? I mean, that's that's your call. You Post it on other public stuff. Yeah, that's so. true, right? Yeah, I should post it on there. I totally forgot about that. Thank you. More content. Um, yes, at Cookies Jar 1988. Uh, please feel free to tweet at me. Send me some birthday messages for Megan. I'll read them to her. <laughs> but well, uh, within as- reason, <laughs> just whatever. Whatever. Just be nice. She's nine. Uh, any big gifts, or is she already looking ahead to the big one zero? So she, she, this morning she woke up and she told us, uh, don't forget, a year from today, we are heading to Disney World because we told her um, when she was 10, we're going to go back to Disney. So she said to us, you better start saving because I know Disney's expensive. So, wow. Yeah. Sorry, what I mean, you say, well, sorry, sweetie, Disney's woke now. So mommy and daddy are going to take you somewhere else. I wonder how she'd react. Hmm. I. It depends. If we sat her down and explained it to, to her, she, she had a lot of questions over the weekend about Russia and Ukraine. Lots of questions. Uh, oh. I know. I know. She's a is, she, is she getting a special birthday dinner or do you do that over the weekend? So we, we went out with Judgy Joyce last night for a nice dinner. And then tonight she can pick whatever she wants to order in. And she's getting, I don't know if you would even know what this is, the Oculus. It's those virtual, 
I don't even know really. Dan, oh, like you the goggles, it? like virtual yes. reality stuff. Yes. Yeah. She's very. Well, that's a pretty. That's a pretty good gift. Yeah, and her birthday party is next Saturday, so she's excited for that too. So we'll be celebrating. Well, for we'll quite maybe a we'll while. get some updates on that. We'll check in on the party planning process perhaps later in the week during a home stretch, but we are out of time for tonight. Back here tomorrow for the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. See you on a special report coming up in a little while, and then talk to you right back here tomorrow. Good night. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.